Thank you for downloading this podcast from BJOG. Hi, my name is Aris Papajorju, Deputy Editor-in-Chief for BJOG, and I'd like to thank you for joining me today on this editorial podcast for the March 2021 edition. In this issue, we have the usual breadth of articles, all the way from basic science, such as the variations in cortisol concentrations during pregnancy, to qualitative work, such as the experiences of fetal medicine specialists in Ireland after changes in the law relating to pregnancy termination. Today, I wanted to highlight three articles that could be useful for your work in maternity on Monday morning. The first is on better screening for gestational diabetes. If you work in an antenatal clinic, you know that gestational diabetes is becoming increasingly common. I work in the United Kingdom, where about one in seven women have the condition. As in many countries, we screen women for GDM in the third trimester, based on a variety of risk factors. There are problems with this approach, though. The risk factors used have really poor predictive accuracy, and the diagnosis occurs late in pregnancy. Because of this, there's been a lot of research focus on improving both the accuracy of screening and achieving earlier diagnosis so that we can have better risk stratification, start treatment earlier or secondary prevention, and ultimately improve pregnancy outcomes. Step forward, first trimester prognostic regression models. Uh, you may be familiar with these for screening, for example, for preeclampsia. In a prospective multi-center cohort from 31 midwifery practices in the Netherlands, Van Horn compared the predictive performance of these first trimester prognostic models for GDM with the current model of using a risk factor-based approach. What they found is that the prognostic models performed better than the care as usual reference method. George Box was a great statistician and he famously said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. In other words, the approximate nature of any model must be borne in mind. I think that in the case of GDM, screening with such models looks very useful. Firstly, because it's based on already collected data. And secondly, because it allows much earlier prediction. The challenge is now to conduct studies using these models that examine whether pregnancy outcomes can be improved. The second study I wanted to highlight concerns birth after previous obstetric anal sphincter injury. Women who've uh, suffered such an injury in their first birth will often consider the option of an elective caesarean section in a future pregnancy. Their decision has to balance risks. If they have a vaginal birth in the second pregnancy, will there be a recurrence of anal sphincter injury or worsening of symptoms they already have? And they need to balance this against the risks of caesarean section. Getting this right is difficult because there's a lack of good information. So far, studies have been observational. In this issue, Lauren Abramovitz and his colleagues present the first randomized trial on the subject. The question is a simple one. Is a planned caesarean section for the second birth beneficial in reducing the chance of subsequent anal incontinence in women with previous anal sphincter injury? They identified women with anal sphincter injury during the first pregnancy by doing an endoanal ultrasound in the second pregnancy and 
of the 264 women that had ultrasound evidence of such sphincter lesions, 222 were randomized to planned caesarean or planned vaginal birth. What they found was that planned caesarean did not prevent anal incontinence at six months postpartum. Now, the study was a little too small to conclusively show a lack of protective effect, but I think it adds really valuable information and the first randomized information for women deciding about birth after previous obstetric anal sphincter injury. The third paper I wanted to highlight concerns long-term effects of postpartum hemorrhage. As obstetricians, we are too aware of the immediate effects of PPH on mortality and morbidity. The question here was whether there were long-term effects. Cho and colleagues undertook a large study in Korea. The Korea National Health Insurance System covers 97% of the population and they merged this with data on health screening to look for associations with long-term cardiovascular disease. There were 150,000 women included, 10% of them had a PPH and 0.6% needed a transfusion. No differences were seen in long-term cardiovascular risk between women with and without PPH, but... When they looked at women who required transfusion, there was an important and significant association with development of subsequent cardiovascular disease, both cerebrovascular and ischemic heart disease. I wondered what the biological mechanism might be that leads to this increase in the risk for future cardiovascular risk. A lot of possibilities are there. Maybe it's the transfusion itself, the severity of the PPH requiring transfusion, causing periods of hypovolemia or silent ischemic damage? Could it be due to vascular endothelial damage? Or maybe even that the characteristics of women that have major hemorrhage are the same characteristics that lead to cardiovascular disease, something known as confounding. I hope the paper leads to further research in this field, and in the meantime, I think it reminds us all of the importance of timely management in the clinical setting. One last thing. PJOG is a truly international journal, since its foundation in 1902 has undergone many innovations, adapting to advances and changes. I wanted to let you know about an excellent example of this innovation, namely the launch of a Chinese edition of BJOG. This quarterly publication will republish a selection of articles from BJOG fully translated and available for clinicians and researchers in China. The most relevant articles to local practice will be selected by a group of local advisors led by Professor Zhu Lan, the Director of Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Peking Union Medical College Hospital and the President-elect of the Chinese Society of Obstetrics and Gynecology. In China, progress on women's health has been really impressive and I think a major part is played by education. The proportion of women receiving higher education before 1990 was less than 3%. But by 2010, the proportion of women in higher education was 30%, surpassing that of men. I've had the privilege to see some of these impressive initiatives over the last 12 years at first hand. I've traveled to China very regularly to build academic collaborations and initiate training programs. In my view, the launch of this China edition of BJOG answers the call by the United Nations to invest in women's health and gender equality.
I think it responds to a strong economic and social case for investing in women's health. For sure, it will help in the exchange of research findings both ways, wider dissemination of research published in BJOG and by increasing high-quality research from China being available to our audience. Have a wonderful month and see you again soon. Thank you for listening to this podcast from BJOG. We have been reporting the best research in women's health since 1902. We are keen to hear your views. Tweet us at BJOG Tweets. You can find more podcasts at www.bjog.org.